A new book reveals how to recognize and defeat the evil of communism and other totalitarian regimes like Putin's Russia. The Triumph of Good, Cain, Abel, and the End of Marxism, with commentary by the author, Thomas Cromwell. Chapter 10. The Advent of Communism. Marxism offers an earthly utopia. The first section. The Genesis of Marxism. There was much to concern a thoughtful person in the mid-19th century. The Industrial Revolution, which has started towards the end of the 18th century, was having a dramatic impact on how people worked and lived. Wealth was being created at an unprecedented pace. Initially, only owners and investors appeared to benefit from the development of capitalism, while the workers lived and labored in wretched conditions. The disparity in income and lifestyles is dramatically evident in the magnificent homes of industrialists of the era, compared with the humble hovels of workers. However, as the 19th century progressed, there were several new workers' rights laws passed in industrial states, and the workers too began to see a very significant improvement in their standard of living. It was against the backdrop of suffering among the poorer classes, and especially workers, that Karl Marx developed his theory of communism as a solution to social injustices. Working closely with his decades-long collaborator, fellow German Friedrich Engels, he developed a politico-economic theory that justified violent revolution by the poor against the wealthy. In their landmark 1848 treatise, The Communist Manifesto, Marx and Engels railed against injustices in Europe, blaming capitalism, religion, family, and the state for human alienation and suffering. Believing that private property was the root of evil, they called for it and the capitalist system based on it to be abolished. I quote, in this sense, the theory of the communists may be summed up in the single sentence, abolition of private property, end quote. Communism would become the most influential materialist and revolutionary ideology ever devised, inspiring numerous violent revolutions and the creation of many totalitarian socialist and communist governments. To this day, Marxism and its offshoots pose the greatest threat to civilizations around the world. A new section, Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels. Marx and Engels were not accomplished scientists, despite their claim to have invented scientific socialism. Their economic theories were based on a narrow and inaccurate view of capitalism in 19th century Europe, as well as their personal resentments and hatreds for those more fortunate than them. Ironically, foreshadowing a history of communist hypocrisy, Engels was himself the son of an industrialist and supported both himself and Marx with income from those capitalist industries. Their political views were developed to justify violent revolution to overthrow existing governments, the capitalist system, and traditional social institutions, all in the name of the working classes, 
or proletariat. Most of their theories are contained in the three volumes of Das Kapital, or Capital, a massive work started by Marx. The first volume was published in 1867, but finished by Engels after Marx's death in 1883. It is not an easy read. It features laborious argumentation for concepts of nature, economics, politics, and theory that simply don't stand up to modern standards of scientific investigation and knowledge. Nevertheless, they claim that the scientific basis for their central theories was confirmed when Charles Darwin came up with his theory of evolution based on natural selection. They believed that survival of the fittest, as it was labeled by Henry Spencer, was proof of their dialectical theory in which inadequacies and contradictions within entities give rise to conflicts that ultimately produce new and better entities. In a December 19, 1860 letter to Engels, Marx declared that Darwin's On the Origin of Species, and I quote, is the book which contains the basis in natural history for our views, end quote. And in a January 16, 1861 letter to activists Ferdinand LaSalle, he elaborated, I quote, Darwin's work is most important and suits my purpose in that it provides a basis in natural science for the historical class struggle, end quote. Marx's chief dispute with Darwin was that the English scientists believed evolution was a very gradual process that unfolded over centuries and millennia. This contradicted Marx's dialectic theory, which predicted that species would develop through a progression of revolutionary leaps. Marx reasoned that as humans are merely evolved animals, their natural tendency to rebel against the status quo, as described in dialectical and historical materialism, is reflected in the evolution of the natural world. The original concept of the dialectic is attributed to Aristotle and was demonstrated by his student in the Dialogues of Plato as an approach to validating knowledge. Georg Hegel elaborated on this concept with his theory that a proposition is a thesis that is contradicted by its antithesis, an interaction that is resolved by the emergence of a higher truth or synthesis. He saw this process guiding human development towards an absolute. Marx rejected Hegel's conclusion and adopted a left Hegelian interpretation of the dialectic. He proposed that the reaction of the antithesis to the thesis was radical and typically violent due to their essential contradictory natures. He described human beings as a composite of essence and existence who advanced through dialectical action ultimately creating a history of progress through repeated violent rejections of the status quo. Marx and Engels borrowed another idea from Hegel, namely that dialectical action transforms quantitative change into qualitative change. As an example of this phenomenon, Engels explained that as water undergoes changes in temperature, it also transforms from solid to liquid to gas. For a biological example, he said that a barley seed naturally germinates through an internal dialectical struggle and becomes a plant. The seed no longer exists, but the plant then negates itself by producing seeds and the sequence is repeated. 
This negation of negation results in more seeds and more plants. Engels speculated that through labor, apes were able to transition to humans, and that growth in human population resulted in changes in social structures. Stalin embraced another example of negation of negation. French-Hungarian Marxist Georges Politzer said that when a chicken emerges from an egg, it negates the egg, but then the chicken grows into a hen and negates itself. But the dialectic doesn't explain the origin of life itself, unless we are to believe that life emerged as the negation of non-life. Furthermore, the argument that nature rewards conflict by emerging in a new and better synthesis of opposites through the dialectical process is not supported by science. In fact, conflict is destructive. Nature rewards cooperation, as we see in human society, where good emerges from constructive interaction among individuals and groups, whereas conflict results in suffering and destruction. New section, Neo-Marxism, Frankfurt School and Postmodernism. For purposes of simplicity, we are using the term Marxism for those theories promulgated by Marx and Engels, as well as for their direct ideological offspring, Marxism-Leninism and Marxism-Maoism, for example. For later theories heavily influenced by Marxism, but generally not employing the label, we are using the term Neo-Marxism. In particular, this term applies to the ideas developed by the Frankfurt School theorists and later the postmodernists, which reincarnate dialectical materialism as critical theory and maintain Marxist atheism, anti-capitalism and socialism. Thus, while Marx was primarily preoccupied with political and economic theory, especially what he called class warfare, and neo-Marxists are more interested in the social sciences, both share a common overarching purpose, the destruction of traditional societies, including the nuclear family and religion, and ending private property. New section. Is Marxism scientific? This leads to the question, does Marxism qualify as science? While the theory seeks to justify violent revolution by pointing to conflict in nature, natural law itself does not comport with Marxism. The examples offered as proof of negation above prove nothing of the sort. Changes in the state of water brought about by the application or removal of heat have nothing to do with negation. Likewise, there's no negation in the life cycle of barley which is based on the nurturing of seeds by soil, water and sunlight, leading to germination, growth and production of new seeds. The eggshell protects the chick until it can emerge into the world and sustain independent life. In these latter examples, it is not negation and conflict, but the nurturing and multiplication of life that is the shared purpose of the biochemical interactions and the basis for transformation from one state to another. Nature demonstrates that life is the object and result of an endlessly intricate process of one element or entity contributing to the existence of others. Simpler forms enable the appearance and success of more complex beings. In life, 
One existence may sacrifice to sustain the existence of another, sometimes in a hierarchy of life, as in food chains, or for the continuation of life within a species. For example, salmon spend most of their lives in the ocean, but they eventually return to the river of their birth, where they struggle upstream to reach a place where they spawn new life, upon which they die, their bodies supplying food for the next generation. Negation does not explain the origin of life or the mechanism of evolution. Life comes only from life, which is a product of purpose actualized through the dynamic of harmonious reciprocal interaction between subject and object in and between living beings. Thus a nucleus and cytoplasm interact to create a cell, and a male and female animal interact to create offspring. In the inanimate world, this subject-object structure is seen, for example, in the formation of atoms based on interaction between the positively charged nucleus and the negatively charged electrons. Evolution itself is a process of life building on prior life and not on negation of life. Indeed, science is an evolutionary process of discovery in which one generation lays the foundation for the next. As Isaac Newton famously said, quote, If I have seen further, it is by standing on the shoulders of giants. End quote. This was not the approach of Marx and Engels, neither of whom were scientists. They were academics who spent their lives in libraries looking for evidence to prove their revolutionary theories. They did no experiments, and there's no evidence that Marx ever visited a factory, mine, or other industrial workplace although he claimed the workers, the proletariat, were his primary interest, both as the main victims of capitalism and as the world's best hope for a better future. And Marx was not above misquoting sources or using references that were clearly out of date or irrelevant to make a point. As Paul Johnson points out, and I quote, Marx was not interested in finding the truth, but in proclaiming it. There was nothing scientific about him. Indeed, in all that matters, he was an anti-scientist. Another quote, The kind of facts which did not interest Marx were the facts to be discovered by examining the world and the people who live in it with his own eyes and ears. He was totally and incorrigibly desk-bound. Nothing on earth would get him out of the library and the study. End quote. New section. The Absence of Science in Scientific Socialism In 1880, Engels claimed that Marxism was scientific socialism, but that was wishful thinking. Marx was not a real scientist, neither was Engels. They were revolutionaries who sought to wrap their theories in science, but failed. Their critique of capitalism is ill-founded and out of date. Their labor theory of value has little relevance in today's developed economies. Their dialectical materialism is a seriously flawed explanation of evolution and history, and in truth explains nothing. Their economic determinism is an erroneous analysis of social forces. Their debunking of religion is bigoted, and their criticism of the family is wildly erroneous in light of countless studies that demonstrate its vital importance to personal well-being and social stability. 
Paul Johnson points out that Marx had an apocalyptic vision of impending global doom, a dystopian view that was often featured in his poetry and colored his philosophy. In fact, in all his studies and writings, Marx was seeking a philosophical and scientific basis for his theories, rather than developing theories based on fact and science. I quote, Marx, in short, is an eschatological writer from start to finish. Marx's concept of a doomsday, whether in its lurid poetic version or its eventually economic one, is an artistic, not a scientific vision. It was always in Marx's mind, and as a political economist, he worked backwards from it, seeking the evidence that made it inevitable, rather than forward to it, from objectively examinated data." End quote. In taking this backwards approach to formulating his ideology, Marx established a pattern that has been replicated by Marxist and neo-Marxist theorists up to the present. They promulgate theories to justify their resentment, envy, and prejudices, as well as their immoral behavior. Because Marxism provides a false justification for violent revolution, the record of its application in history has been abysmal. Socialism and communism do not deliver the utopia Marx and Engels envisioned. Quite the opposite, they deliver a kind of hell on earth. Instead of securing justice and equality, they justify oppression and inequality. Instead of freeing human minds to explore the truth on their own terms, they control information flows and dictate ideology. Detractors are punished on a scale that makes the Holy Inquisition look like the work of beginners. Cancel culture is the latest incarnation of this feature of Marxism. It is the first step in a communist state's march towards total control of information and severe punishment for detractors and refuseniks. Perhaps the greatest irony of all, and indictment of the theory, is that while the whole point of Marxism is purported to be concerned for workers, the proletariat, this class has fared the worst in socialist and communist states. Thus when, in the 1930s, avid Marxists Arthur Kussler and Andre Gide first visited the Soviet Union, they were shocked to find that workers there lived in wretched circumstances that were far worse than the condition of workers in the capitalist societies from which they had supposedly been saved by the Russian Revolution. Nevertheless, in our secularizing world, the notion that socialism is scientific has proven attractive. Surely, its advocates insist, science can be trusted to guide us to the best possible economic and political system. But their wishful thinking would prefer not to look at the hard evidence of the 20th century with its tens of millions killed at the hands of socialist and communist regimes. Marxist apologists tell us that the Soviet Union and communist China made mistakes, but the theory is sound. It just needs proper application. This is nuts. The Soviet Union and communist China are two leading examples of the application of Marxism to the fullest extent possible. The lack of sound science in Marxism and neo-Marxism also explains another feature common to both, 
They prove nothing and therefore can be said to prove anything. Karl Popper noticed a similar feature in Freud's psychoanalysis, which Popper determined was unscientific because it made no predictions that had the potential to be proved untrue. They were all compatible with every possible observation. As we shall show, the standard defense of Marxist ideologues and leaders when confronted with obvious logical inconsistencies in their positions has been to accuse their critics of being incapable of dialectical thinking. The defense of neo-Marxists is to accuse their critics of being incapable of critical thinking. In the case of postmodernism, Foucault and others abandoned science altogether, claiming that knowledge itself was a function of social structures shaped by the language of the powerful. This position creates a safe haven for nutty and dangerous ideas that are protected from science and rational debate. Ironically, this position does not prevent the left from claiming the mantle of science when convenient to do so, as for example when declaring that a consensus of scientists supports global warming theories. New section, the Marxist view of evil. As noted, Marx believed that Darwin had provided the answer to the riddle of the origin of life, the process of evolution, and the nature of human beings and society. Marx believed that class conflicts over property shaped history, and thus the root of evil was ownership of private property. In the case of capitalist societies, he believed that the accumulation of private property by the bourgeoisie at the expense of the proletariat was at the heart of social injustice and suffering. Thus, capitalism itself is an evil system that can only be remedied by the transfer of private property to ownership by the proletariat-controlled state. He further believed that this remedy could only be achieved through the violent overthrow of the capitalist class since people would not voluntarily surrender their wealth and privilege. The notion that capitalism is the source of evil has been preserved through generations of Marxist ideological evolution and adaptation and is a common thread that runs through neo-Marxist and postmodernist theories. It is supported by Marxist theory of alienation, which says that people are alienated from their true selves due to social stratification into classes, and the solution is to eliminate classes. This is an ultimately superficial and naive theory that lost credence long ago. Capitalism has proved capable of spreading rather than limiting ownership and has created unprecedented wealth for an ever-expanding portion of humanity. Yet the Marxist theory continues to appeal to many who believe that injustice lies in the capitalist economic system, which they believe promotes greed. The inadequacy of the theory is evident in the fact that socialist and communist systems that have replaced capitalism have without exception failed to deliver social and economic equality and justice, let alone universal prosperity. New section. Marx's cane nature is embodied in Marxism. Karl Marx was an unhappy man. Born in 1818 in the Prussian city of Trier, now part of Germany, his family was of Jewish ancestry, with both parents descended from lines of rabbis and Talmudic scholars. 
However, his father converted to Protestantism before Marx was born, joining the dominant Evangelical Church of Prussia, a Lutheran denomination, to get around regulations preventing Jews from competing on an equal basis with Christians in the legal profession. Although Marx grew up in a comfortable, well-to-do home and attended church and a Lutheran elementary school, he came to despise the church and society around him. As he grew into a young man, he saw inequities everywhere and came to believe that economic disparities were at the heart of human alienation and misery. He often drank heavily and was poor at managing his finances. He constantly begged for money from his parents and later in life from his wife and friends. His own wasteful behavior also forced him to borrow money from lenders, often at usurious rates. This fueled his sense of economic injustice and made him a fierce anti-capitalist and anti-Semite, since most of the lenders were Jews. Marx epitomized ingratitude. Despite the sustained support of his parents, of his faithful wife Jenny, and of his partner in revolution Engels, he never had a job of consequence and constantly complained about the system that failed to provide all of his needs as and when he wanted them provided. He was the archetypal Cain character, angry at the world, resentful and irresponsible, and he always blamed others for his own difficulties in life. An angry and bitter man, he created a miserable environment at home. Two of his daughters committed suicide, and all of his family, relatives and associates suffered from his mean-spirited disposition endless, often caustic criticism, and refusal to take responsibility for any of his failings. A new section, Marxism perfects Cain ideology. The Cain-type personality looks at the world through the myopic lens of self-interest. He is unable to recognize the benefit of mutual success and therefore always seeks to take from others for his own benefit. At the same time, he tends to project his attitude onto others, whom he accuses of possessing what are actually his own selfish interests. In this he epitomizes irresponsibility, blaming others for his own problems instead of taking responsibility for them himself. At this point, Cain will likely cloak himself in the virtue of Abel. He will lament his victim's status and claim his innocence of any wrongdoing. Then, if others do not accept his accusations, he will attack them to try and force compliance. This is the point at which verbal abuse can turn to murder. In essence, Marxism perfects the ideology of Cain, which itself was inherited from Lucifer's selfishness, envy, and justification for murder. It is a theory critical of societies that are based on religious values of faith, fidelity, and responsibility. It tells people that their troubles in life are not of their own doing, but should be blamed on others, and that to end their misery they need to do away with the individuals and institutions they accuse of making them suffer. In Marxism, the main antagonists are members of different economic classes. In his time, he identified these classes as the business owners, the bourgeoisie, and the workers, the proletariat. Marx believed that through violent revolution the proletariat would overthrow the bourgeoisie 
and establish a socialist state run by enlightened proletarian leaders. In its wisdom, this dictatorship of the proletariat would build socialism and eventually oversee the withering away of the socialist state, enabling a perfect communist state to appear. In Marxism, personal prejudices and resentments are translated into victimhood-based social agendas, justification for revolution and the destruction of traditional societies, as well as government policies that target social and political groups that are seen as standing in the way of progress. Marxists and neo-Marxists have long since expanded on the original two-class bourgeois proletariat conflict that Marx and Engels believed was the fundamental problem of history and society. They now apply the dialectic to racial, gender, ethnic, and a host of other social divisions. A Marxist only has to label a person or group as an enemy of the people to justify demonizing them and targeting them for revolutionary destruction or totalitarian oppression. New section. The mentality of bullies. Marxists have the mentality of bullies who blame others for their own problems, refuse to take responsibility for their own behavior, and try to crush those who are actually better than them. They take what they want by intimidation and force, and, if necessary, crushing their opponents, real or imagined. This explains the behavior of all violent revolutionary movements and all totalitarian regimes. Thus the Bolsheviks blamed the Tsarist regime and then the Kerensky government for all Russia's ills. They justified taking power from Kerensky by force, killing or imprisoning all the enemies of the revolution and executing the Tsar's family. Once in power, the Communist Party of the Soviet Union became expert at blaming the rest of the world for all its ills, from the arms race to colonialism and poverty. It also blamed the capitalist countries for its own lame economic performance and inability to provide a decent standard of living for its own people. For Marxists and bullies alike, the most difficult thing to do is to face one's own inadequacies, to admit failure or guilt, to ask for forgiveness and to change course. The Soviet Union accused the rest of the world of committing many sins, but these sins were in fact practiced more widely and lethally in Russia and other socialist communist states. A perfect example of this accusatory mentality can be found in Nikita Khrushchev's speeches to the United Nations in 1960. He blamed the West for fomenting irresponsible nuclear policies and for continuing colonialist policies in the developing world. He claimed that the establishment of the Soviet Union was a model of peaceful integration of poor countries into the wonderful community of Soviet states, a much better solution for them than colonialism. The facts, of course, tell the opposite story. In the Bolshevik Revolution and the subsequent civil war, the Communist Party of the Soviet Union crushed countries and ethnic groups from Ukraine and Belarusia to the Baltic states, the Caucasus and Central Asia, and forced them into membership in the USSR. 
The Soviet Union then wielded the threat of its nuclear arsenal in international affairs, fomented violent national liberation revolutions around the world, manipulated Western institutions, and worked tirelessly to subvert enemy states through agents of influence and espionage. New section. In Marxism, ends always justify the means. It is important to note that Marxism, whether as revolutionary or ruling ideology, always justifies its ruthless means by claiming its objectives are for the good of the people and consistent with the inevitable destiny of humankind, a communist utopia. As we discussed in chapter 5, this destiny is the logical conclusion of historical materialism. However, Marxism is based on an erroneous theory of existence, dialectical materialism, that in practice can be used to justify any behavior since it recognizes no moral absolutes. In the world of critical theories, which employ dialectical materialism in a broader context, science itself is rejected as a source of absolutes so that ultimately there are no axiomatic principles or even facts. All is subjective and open to interpretation and justifies any words or deeds, however violent or destructive they may be. Only the end goal, as defined by the theorist, is important. This subjective approach to truth explains communism's bloody history of abuse and cruelty, of the murder of tens of millions of people in the name of the people. In his book, Judgment in Moscow, Vladimir Bukovsky explains how Soviet laws, including Stalin's constitution, were merely window dressing to provide an excuse for show trials, prison camps, psychiatric incarceration, forced exile, and executions. He chronicles how the real decision-making was based on ideology, not law. The Central Committee of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, the main executive organ of the party under the leadership of the Secretary-General, always chose the path that its members believed would best advance their agenda. And the party agenda was, above all else, to expand and secure its power. Bukowski points out that Marxist ideology cannot be a basis for law, or science, or economy for that matter, since it lacks any grounding in scientific or moral principles or values. It is worth quoting his words at some length. Bukowski wrote, Ideology in general, and the Marxist-Leninist version in particular, are incompatible with the concept of law. Ideology is a legend, a myth, and thus unavoidably inconsistent, while the entire sense of the law lies in its internal consistency. Communist practice was all the more inconsistent, being a compromise between ideology and reality. And what was done, and what was not, on any given day, was known only at the top of the pyramid of power. The task of ideology is to explain everything on earth in veiled concepts, not amenable to precise definition. The task of the law is to determine everything with a maximum precision, leaving no loopholes. And how can these two things be reconciled? For instance, how can dialectical materialism be codified?
the results would be something akin to the efforts of the medieval scholars to calculate exactly how many angels can fit on the head of a pin. But the main reason for the incompatibility of the law with ideology in a totalitarian state lies in that their ideology, not the law, must dominate by definition. And if ideology cannot rule through the law, then it becomes above the law, ruling from behind its back, as it were. Just as the party, the standard bearer of the ideology, rules from behind the backs of other state structures and is a superstructure formation. Bearing in mind the global aims of this ideology and with it those of the party, the law simply transforms into a fiction, an offshoot of propaganda calculated to create an attractive image of the world's most democratic socialist state. This was glaringly obvious in the example of the Stalinist constitution written expressly for propagandistic purposes. In practice, the law existed only on paper. The country was governed in accordance with an endless stream of departmental, state and party instructions and resolutions, which were frequently contradicted and mainly confidential. To reduce all of this to a single non-contradictory state was beyond even the party's ability. Telephone law flourished. A call from the party boss would be the latest legislative act. In all fairness, it must be said that the ideology was just as incompatible with other areas of life, such as economics and science, for the very same reasons. End quote. New section. The Marxist criticism of Christianity. The attraction of Marxism was that it afforded a kingdom of heaven on earth a man-made utopia that was attainable in your lifetime and hence much more alluring than the invisible, otherworldly kingdom of heaven promised in an ever-receding future by Christianity. In his 1894 On the History of Early Christianity, Engels emphasized this key selling point of Marxism, and I quote, Both Christianity and the workers' socialism preach forthcoming salvation from bondage and misery. Christianity places this salvation in a life beyond, after death, in heaven. Socialism places it in this world, in a transformation of society." End quote. This is precisely the vulnerability of Christianity that Marxism exploits with its fault-finding. It has been easy for Marxists and other materialists to point to imperfections and outright injustices in Christian societies, as well as those of other religions, and blame the religion itself for its failure to realize its own ideals in the here and now. And Christianity's promise of a good world, sometime in the unknown future, is simply not good enough for those afflicted with very real suffering in their lives. More than that, a righteous mind demands equality and justice in the present time. This is especially true in the world we live in now, when science and technology have so dramatically been able to improve our lives. Surely, an equitable society should be within reach. Indeed, in many respects, the attraction of Marxism has resided in its alignment with the global trends towards humanism and science over religion and faith. Marxism is an ideological offshoot 
of the anti-church, anti-monarchy French Revolution, which was the result of Renaissance and Enlightenment influences, but lacked a cohesive revolutionary theory. Marx and Engels perfected just such a theory, providing an ideological base for violent revolutions into the future. A new section. Marxism's falsehoods doom it to failure. The obvious truth is that while society is more and more secular, human beings are eternally spiritual. The beautiful world pictured by Marx and Engels can never be delivered by socialism and communism or any other atheistic system built by totalitarians. Marxism and neo-Marxism are bound to fail. Only enlightened, caring human beings can realize a real heavenly kingdom through understanding divine laws and applying them to life, thereby growing ever more mature in giving and receiving love. However, Marxism has continued to expand its influence after over a century of poisoning civilization with atheistic ideology and spreading violent revolutions around the world. Clearly then, the existence of falsehoods and deceptions in the theory is not in itself a sufficient reason to trust in Marxism's demise. There must be a persuasive and effective alternative to Marxism that supplants it in our culture and in ruling ideologies. Developing and planting that alternative deep into modern society is the most pressing task facing people of faith and goodwill today. After all, Marxism has been criticized since its birth, but it has not been thoroughly debunked and replaced with a credible alternative so far. New section. Developing an effective alternative to Marxism. Christianity and other religions have many of the essential truths needed to achieve a godly alternative to Marxism, but this alternative has not yet been fully articulated. As Marxism built on the Renaissance and Enlightenment, a new articulation of religious understanding and belief can be built on the Protestant Reformation and the Great Awakening that took place in the 1730s and 1740s. A new and deeper understanding of the truth should make personal responsibility crystal clear. We should no longer wait for God to do what is in fact our responsibility and do everything in our power to contribute to the positive transformation of the world as champions of truth, justice and goodness. Both being part of an originally good creation, the Marxist and the bully know at some deep level that they are wrong. Yet they are unable to overcome their jealousy for the more blessed person, culture or nation. Their solution is to criticize and destroy as if this will actually benefit them. It never does. At best it offers fleeting gains, gains that are forever tainted by the injustice that they know they have indulged in to get what they want. Only resolute opposition to their falsehoods by good people, good groups, and good governments can enable the Marxists and the bullies to face this painful reality about themselves. The fact that they have acted in grievous error and must do something to rectify the injustices they have perpetrated. It is at this moment of self-realization that a sincere hand of help should be offered to guide them on the path of virtue and goodness.
Appeasement, on the other hand, only feeds the beasts to their selfish ambitions. That was the fundamental problem with détente, and it is the basic weakness of a policy of accommodation with communist China today. We need to be clear in our opposition to communism while appealing to the inherent goodness of the people and culture who are in fact its victims. We need to be confident that history is indeed on our side, that evil ultimately has no future because it exists in contradiction to the laws of creation. This is our responsibility. End of chapter.